Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all his other health and medical stories. And because this is our first podcast episode that we are recording in the new year, mm-hmm. and also because that intro I just did, three transplants, health and medical stories, we've actually talked about your three transplants. <laughs> we've yeah. talked about most most of your health and medical stories. Right. And so we thought that starting things off for this episode, we'd talk about some kidney transplant and organ donation stuff that's been in the news. Yeah. That's been coming up a little bit lately. So to dive right into it, because I saw several people share this article from Slate on Twitter, and I felt like we should really talk about it. Yeah. Um, There's an article in Slate by Ian Adams and Ann Hobson called, Self-Driving Cars Will Make Organ Shortages Even Worse. (laughs) Right. Do you want to summarize this article for the podcasting audience? Sure. So the article points out that we are kind of on the verge of self-driving cars being a thing. Later in the article, they say it's actually going to be about 10 years before they're very common, which I think is probably true, but that many, if not most, of the deceased donor organ donations in this country come from automobile accidents or uh, motorcycle accidents on the road, and that a study says over 90% of those kinds of accidents are attributable to driver error, that with autonomous vehicles, which don't generally make any kinds of errors, that we're going to see traffic fatalities sharply, sharply reduced over the next decade or so. And as a result, uh uh-oh, we already have an organ donation shortage, so we're going to see far fewer of them uh, with autonomous cars, and um, then they propose as a primary solution paying donors for organs. They suggest some other things that have been talked about for years or solutions that have been tried in other countries, uh, which I think we'll discuss, but their primary point is we're going to have less organs, so we should open this up to the free market. Right. Right. So I'll let you go first. What do you think of this article? Um, well, as I was reading this article, I was reminded of a thing that I think is from The Simpsons, and I was reading it going, okay, fur it, again it, again it, fur it, <laughs> again it, fur it. Um, some of the solutions that they've talked about, they didn't really introduce anything that I haven't heard. But their primary point is something that I am sharply opposed to for a lot of reasons. Um, I think the primary ones are just around inequality and potential for abuse. Right. I want to actually back up because my first response just from the headline and the introductory issue is that this whole thing is so ghoulish and misguided as an idea. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Oh, what a bummer. Fewer people are going to die in car accidents. Yeah. They do kind of acknowledge that later in the article, but yes. And I think that I think the reason that I react more strongly to that perceived ghoulishness is one of the things we talked about when we talked about how organ donation and how organ donation recipients are portrayed in popular culture right? as these vultures ready to swoop down and take things from you. Mm-hmm. And so I 
don't like that this article is perhaps portraying people who need transplants as like, oh, darn, fewer people are going to die. <laughs> yeah. Because I am very glad you got a transplant. Mm-hmm. I am not glad that your donor's family lost their brother and son. No, not at all. Yeah. You know, the most of the people who I know who are very pro-donation or need organ donations are not happy about people dying. Right. You know, 22 people a day die on the transplant list waiting for transplant. And many, many people die in car accidents every day. And both those things are sad. Yes. And I am against preventable death. Right. So <laughs> Me too. I'm really happy if self-driving cars mean less people will die in car accidents. Yeah. And I'd be really happy if smarter organ donation policies meant la- less people died on the transplant list. Yeah. And sort of to build on that too, if better medical technology is available to have more frequent organ donations or organ donations that last longer or that somehow make organ donation unnecessary. You know, all of those things <laughs> are important. I think any um, decent human wants there to be fewer people dying. Right. And one of the reasons I thought we should talk about this is you as an organ donation recipient, us as an organ donation family, mm-hmm. I feel like we need to raise our voices in opposition to this kind of attitude. Yeah. Because I don't think the authors have personal experience with organ donation, if I had to guess. Right, if I had to guess, I I agree. Because I looked the authors up, and Mm. they are both from the R Street Institute. Okay. Which is a think tank whose mission is, quote, engage in policy research and outreach to promote free markets and limited effective government. Ah. So, you know, they're conservatives. And I don't appreciate using people who need organs to promote a very clear political free market agenda. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, hey, don't help us. Right. No, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think we as people who have benefited from organ donation, and I would also argue just like as decent people, knowing many decent people, we are against death. We are for more people surviving more things. And in general, I think you and I are both pro the progress of technology. Right. You are alive today because of good, life-sustaining research. So, Mm -hmm. so much of it. And self-driving cars are life-sustaining research just in another field. Yeah. The people building those cars, they want to make people safer. The doctors doing kidney research want to make you live longer. Yeah. Both of those advancements are good, positive things. <laughs> yes, they are. I am pro both of those things. And I, I don't think that's a controversial statement. I think most people are. I, I know that some people have some issues with autonomous cars for various reasons, but um, this isn't the podcast about that. Um, yeah, we want more people to be more alive, and that's great. I think some might make an argument that a headline that's provocative like this and perhaps a couple of lead paragraphs that are provocative like this, oh, it sounds terrible, but really they're bringing attention to the organ donation problem. Yeah, I guess, maybe. But if you're bringing attention to that in a way that makes organ donation recipients look bad Mm -hmm. or brings in even more negative associations with organ donation, which is already a cultural problem, I don't think you're helping. Right. Well, it sort of makes it 
in addition to the ghoulishness, it sort of makes us seem um, grasping, I guess. Is that how I want to say that? Like, it's just not great um, and, and kind of unappreciated. Like, no, stop, stop helping. Thank you. So let's talk about this free market solution they have where people should be paid for organ donations. Okay. You and I are very much against any policy that's about paid organ donation. Yeah. For a bunch of reasons. So I think the best way is to kind of take it from the top. Okay. Most obviously, economic inequality. Right. You don't want to create a system where people who are very wealthy can pay for organs and jump a line and people who are very poor continue to die. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> it's like, yep, that is, that is 100% correct. I side on to that. Um, yes. And I think that that has always been the strongest argument against that this sort of policy. And it's what was behind... Um, I think the original legislation, which I, I again think was in the 80s, that said, no, you can't do that. As organ donation became um, more of a viable option. Um, in fact, the article itself points out that when, with the invention of cyclosporin, um, organ transplants went from about a 20 to 30% success rate to about a 60 to 70% success rate. And that makes it an actual option for a lot of people. And then some people said, um, and we don't want to have this inequality thing. We don't want it to be just for rich people. Um, and I think you and I have kind of at least mentioned this in the past, but the way insurance works for organ donations in some ways pretty good in other ways not awesome, but it's okay. But the idea that, and I think this rankles or should rankle and rub people the wrong way in general, that somebody could jump the line because like, well, listen, I've just got 60 grand. I'm feeling a little sick. That's not how it would really be. But like, I've got 60 grand. My kidneys are at about 20%, 15%. I'm going to go get me an organ. Seems really unfair when lots of people don't have 60 grand. We'll never have 60 grand. Can't even do it on some kind of payment plan. Can't do that. And that's true of most people. In the article does point out that inequalities already exist within the transplant and healthcare systems. Yes. So people who are very wealthy could travel to several different jurisdictions, essentially, and get on the list in multiple places, Get pay for more tests so they can get tested in multiple places. Right. There are already plenty of ways, and I think some we've even talked about in previous episodes on the podcast, mm -hmm. in which, you know, having more money... Makes life easier. And I know this is not a revelation <laughs> for anyone, right. but wealth and privilege don't cease to exist within the world of disability and chronic illness. Not at all. And so those inequalities already exist. I think what I object to in this article is them saying, well, those inequalities already exist, so who cares? Yeah, that is kind of how I felt like it came across. It was very hand-wavy in that way, and I don't think that's a good way to go about it. Um, I should also point out that while we're talking about inequality and health and chronic disease, that our less privileged populations or population in the United States tends to have more health problems, tends to have more chronic disease. There is a larger need and a, or a higher need for organ donation, specifically um, among our poorer citizens in this country than there are among our wealthier citizens. And that's for a host of reasons, but that means that because of that, a policy like this would further spread that inequality 
it would make it further worse. And I'm, you know, as I said earlier, firmly again that. And the other issue, kind of keeping with this rich-poor divide, yes. is that it leads to perhaps a system where poor people are exploited. Yes. And you create an incentive for people to sell their organs because they need to make rent, for example. Mm-hmm. And that is not a good system. No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's also not a good system that we have where some people to make rent or eat for the week or whatever are selling sperm or blood or eggs or, you know... <laughs> Things like that. Like, none of that is good. Um, they even specifically make the comparison, like, well, we already pay people for their eggs. What's it different from doing this? And I think that the casual thinker could come up with a bunch of ways that those two things are different. And to interject, when I was in law school, yes, there are many, many cases about egg donation there are lots of rules and restrictions about what you can and can't pay people for. Sure. And lots of the ways in which people are paid are through odd little loopholes. And so that's a very glossed over comparison that they're making. But it isn't just as simple as, right. oh, well, we pay people for eggs. Yeah, 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 exactly. I also kind of got the sense that it wasn't a particularly researched um, statement to say that. But um, yeah, I kind of don't, don't know what else to say here. Like, it's just, it's a very pat answer to a complex problem. And even if you're so cold-hearted that you don't care about the people who are selling their organs because out of economic desperation when mm -hmm. perhaps they wouldn't otherwise, and maybe you don't care about poor people on the list dying when rich people on the list get their mm -hmm. organs first, maybe you don't care about any of that. Right. There are other reasons that this is a bad idea. Yes. When you introduce money into an equation and you introduce economic desperation into an equation... The person who's desperate to sell their kidney so that they can make rent, when they have a doctor ask them a question like, have you engaged in any of these high-risk behaviors that might endanger the organ recipient in the past several mm -hmm. months, now has an incentive to be dishonest. Right. You know, when your family members donated to you, they had to be very honest with doctors about yes. their medical history, about their life history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's really easy to sort of go, oh, but they can test for that. And like, sometimes they can. But not always, you know, like something that you did 20 years ago might or might not affect the health of a kidney, whether you tell the truth about it or not. But also you could say, oh, no, I never have. But then you do it tomorrow. You know, like all of those things could happen. They might or might not show up on a test, but might actually have an impact. It's just a it's a thing where, yes, of course, you would regulate. Yes, of course, you would have restrictions. Yes, of course, you would have screening. Because I don't really think anybody's advocating for, like, here's a check, here's a kidney, nothing else. But Well, the R Street Institute does want those government regulations <laughs> off your back. <laughs> that, that is true. But, but even they mentioned that there would be regulations to make it, quote, more just. But it really ignores sort of, I don't want to say human nature, like that's an ugly thing, but it ignores... Uh, real harsh economic realities for some people, for the kind of people who would be more likely to say, I was throwing out a $60,000 figure. Maybe it's only 5000 Maybe it's ten. Maybe it's 100 bucks. I would hope not, I guess, but that doesn't matter. 100 bucks is a lot of money. And if you need or want that money, you're far more likely to just kind of gloss stuff over or just say, yeah, yeah it's fine. 
Right. And an organ that you're going to put in your body that your life is going to depend on is not like a couch you're buying on Craigslist. Mm -mm. Oh, we got home and it turns out they flipped the cushions around so we didn't see that stain. Right. That's not how a kidney works. Yeah. You don't want there to be um, a medical procedure where everything comes with, well, caveat emptor. Like, no, no, no. That sounds really terrible. Um, (laughs) I don't even know if I pronounced the Latin correctly, but like... Um. For our non-Latin speaking listeners, caveat emptor means let the buyer beware. Right. I think it says that. It used to say it on eBay. It certainly says it on Craigslist. Like, you, you get what you pay for, kind of. And it, it's just, uh, I, I feel like <laughs> I'm trying to be nice, but it's a stunningly bad idea. I think that compensation as maybe a broader category might be okay in certain limited cases if it were done in a really, really different way. But the idea that basically I, a sick individual, or I, somebody who has set up a GoFundMe, which I think would be terrible. I mean, GoFundMes are great, I guess, but like not for this kind of thing, should not be the person who is soliciting an organ. I think it's something that should be, by the very nature of what it is, because it is life-saving, because it is complex and difficult and dangerous for everybody involved it needs to be the kind of thing that it's not just regulated by the state and the government but it also needs to be the kind of thing that is um run by a major agency or run by medical professionals entirely and all the payments and all the everything are being taken care of at that institutional level where there are many 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 checks and balances primarily from a medical standpoint. Right. I am fully in favor of the recipient's insurance paying for the donor's medical expenses and surgery, which is Mm -hmm. the case. And I'm also comfortable with that being broadly construed. If they miss work, if they need to take time off, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in favor of fully compensating a living donor for their donation. Yeah, absolutely. One of the programs that the article talked about, which I had read about several years ago and kind of forgotten, is this um, plan that was implemented in Israel, and I think a couple of other countries maybe have done something similar. It's a government program that, and I'm going to leave some stuff out, I'm sure, but basically it says if you agree to donate an organ, you are compensated in a bunch of ways. And none of those are specifically like, here's a check financial, but they are like you get basically paid leave from your work for about four months, I think. So you can just fully recover from the surgery. That is, in in my experience, to my knowledge, more than enough time to recover from standard kidney donation surgery. All the insurance and the medication and everything else is just totally covered and... There might be a couple of other things like that, but the special thing that they added was if you are the family member of someone who donates through that program and later in life you need some kind of um, organ donated to help you, you are then quote-unquote put to the top of the list. I have no idea how Israel's organ donation system works, but in America that would mean you get a bunch of bonus points so that you have higher priority than um, someone who was not 
part of that system. And they saw uh, organ donation rates increase by tens of percents, like up over 60 or 70 percent, which is kind of amazing. And that's a pretty expensive program. It's a government program. It's things like that. But that's the kind of thing I can get behind. It incentivizes more people to donate organs. It incentivizes good behavior while also not being the kind of thing where it's just sort of free money in a way or it doesn't exploit people and yeah. it doesn't play into people with more money getting better treatment right in this one case in I mean, this one case like i said yeah. having more money will always <laughs> help you in life it, it will help a lot um absolutely uh, but maybe speaking of some other international plans that we think are good ideas okay the other big 2017 organ donation news yes is that French citizens will now all automatically be organ donors. Right. Uh, as of January 1st, 2017, France now has an opt-out policy for organ donation as opposed to opt-in. Um, in the U.S., we have opt-in. You have to sign a donor card uh, or on your driver's license or something like that. Let and, your family know. And let your family know. And the reason you have to let your family know is because... Even if you have said, yes, I've opted in, your family still has the option to say, ah, I don't really want to. And the default position is that nobody takes anybody's organs. Um, and that's true in many parts of the world. But in France now, as in several other countries, including Spain and a bunch of other places I can't remember. Um, Spain, Austria, and Wales. Okay. And I also think, interestingly, Israel. Right. That's part of that whole big change that they made, I believe. Now, the change is that it is assumed that if you're a tissue match, that um, organs of yours will be taken to help save the lives of people who need their lives saved in that way, unless you have registered with the Don't Take My Organs place, which has an actual official, very pretty sounding French name. Um and your family members can also sign papers registering for that. And I think I read there's about 150,000 people have already opted out. And, you know, for whatever reason, I don't think you even have to give a reason. There are certain religions that sometimes, depending on an individual or a group <laughs> interpretation of their laws, might say no thank you to organ donation. But opting out means that, honestly, if you're kind of one of those people who's like, oh, I never thought about it, I don't really care, then good. We can we can go ahead and we can use your organs that you don't need anymore to save lives, regardless of whether you like thought about it ahead of time. Right. I include in the show notes for every kidney cast episode the information people need to do to become donors. Yeah. And I don't think that it's a very onerous process. Mm -mm. But it's something that people have to take an affirmative step to do. And even people who are pro-organ donation, maybe you just don't get around to it in time. Yeah. You know, I'm pro having our dishwasher run <laughs> on time and cleaned out all the time. And sometimes that just doesn't happen, even though I'm very much in favor of it. Yeah, I too am very much in favor of the dishwasher being run on time. And yet, <laughs> um, <laughs> man, we need an opt-out system for the dishwasher. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I hope at least, that it's it's a fairly straightforward, logical process to realize why opting out 
or an opt-out system rather, is a kind of system that leads to many more donated organs being available and would help save a lot more lives. And I also think it's important that you can opt out. Yeah, of course. And I think that actually weights the effort that has to be taken more correctly. That's, a, that's an odd way to phrase that. But if a person knows they don't want to donate and they care, they care enough to go do that form. They have an objection or yeah. a discomfort or a religious prerogative that's going to make them go do that. People are less casually anti-organ donation, and I think way more people are casually pro. Right. Or casually, I don't know. Right. Yes. And survey data says most people are actually in favor of donating their organs after they die, but they didn't sign the forms. Right. And so if you're going to have to make a choice either way, if a person has died and they can't tell you what they want, you should probably go with what the overwhelming majority of people would want. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think. And the people who object should definitely register the objection and their organs should not be used. Yeah. Their wishes should be respected. Yeah, absolutely. The reason I said, interestingly, Israel, is as we talked about when we talked about your first transplant, yeah. is that certain interpretations of Jewish law mm -hmm. mean that some Jews are against donating organs. Right. The traditional Jewish burial thing. Well, there's a lot of traditional <laughs> Jewish burial things, but one of them specifically is that the body in its entirety intact must be uh, buried whole. And um, that means that for some Jews, if you donated a liver, you would not be being buried whole because that part comes from the factory with you and it is not there when you're being buried. And so some Jews object. There is, not surprisingly, some controversy and discussion over that. Um, and so, yeah, it is interesting that right. Israel, of all places, says, hey, wait. Yeah, it's it sort of... Seems to say, you know, if that country can handle an <laughs> right. opt-out system, other countries can make it work. Yeah, we can. So I'm very happy that France is doing it. I'm happy that Spain, Austria, and Wales all do it. Mm -hmm. I wish the United States would do it. Agreed. It would um, save a lot of lives. Yeah, I think it would too. What's interesting to me, we're talking about this here, and I remember having this same conversation about opt-out versus opt-in with family members before my first transplant. So 20 years ago, we were talking about this same idea, and I don't think it was a new conversation when we were having it. So it's the kind of thing, like with any legislation, it's a little bit niche and things like that, that there has to be real will, and somebody's got to write a bill, and somebody's got to convince everybody, and um, it's the kind of thing that maybe isn't being lobbied for, and maybe there hasn't been the movement for it yet, but it really would actually save lives. It's a pretty simple thing. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's like public education. There's other things that would need to happen there. Absolutely. But for a lot of people, it wouldn't change anything. And for the people that it would change something for, most of them, it would be saving their lives. And for some people, it would mean some paperwork. Right. And especially in this new year of 2017, <laughs> there are lots of reasons people should be calling their congressmen. I mean, sure, yeah, yeah. Lots of healthcare-related reasons people should be calling uh -huh. their congressmen. Yes. So I can understand if this is another issue that goes on the back burner, mm -hmm. but it's a good policy, and I think it's a good thing for people to know about. It's a good thing that more countries are trying it. Yeah. So having talked about this sort of kidneys and organs in the news, yes, I think 
that was our lead topic. We'll transition into what would normally be maybe the mail topic. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I want to say, we didn't receive any mail about this, but I was listening to our episode about whether or not we would have kids. Mm-hmm. And this occurred to me. Okay. Which is that um, we did a lot of talking about sex and gender in a biologically determinative way. Okay, yeah. There was a lot of conversation about how we could not have a kid or we felt we could not have a kid with two X chromosomes. Right. And we said that means we could not have a girl. Yes. And while that's probably the likely result. Yes. I also just wanted to go back and acknowledge transgender people do exist. (laughs) Yes, they do. It would be possible for you to have a kid with an X and a Y that turned out to be a girl. It'd be very unlikely, I think. But maybe not as unlikely as I think it is. Yeah. And I don't want to claim that that's not possible. And I also don't want to claim that that wouldn't be acceptable to us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We maybe should have been talking about having an XX versus an XY child, but we probably just went to cultural norms and had that version of that conversation instead. And I think part of it was we were talking about ourselves back in time. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about how chromosomes and gender relate to one another. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, I was projecting my mind back into the way I thought about things back then. Yeah, that's really true. transgender people were way less visible. Right. Not entirely invisible, but less visible. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. So I just, I wanted to make sure we took just a <laughs> tiny moment to say that. Yeah, I agree. And then the other piece of mail that we're going to talk about is actually not from a listener. It's an old piece of mail I found (laughs) while going through my various boxes between you and I. Okay. Because I kept a series of emails we sent back and forth way back in 2012. Oh, wow. Okay. When you sent me an article by Stella Young called We're Not Here for Your Inspiration. (laughs) Okay. I kind of remember that. Yeah. And this was a woman who, um, writing as a disabled person, writing as a woman who uses a wheelchair about inspirational memes Mm -hmm. dealing with people who have disabilities. Right. And she's talking, she calls them inspiration porn. Yeah. So I'm going to read a little bit of her article. Okay. Inspiration porn is an image of a person with a disability, often a kid, doing something completely ordinary, like playing or talking or running or drawing a picture or hitting a tennis ball, carrying a caption like, your excuse is invalid, or before you quit, try. Or the only disability in life is a bad attitude. Right. (laughs) There's a picture of a little girl running on a set of prosthetic legs along Oscar Pistorius, also using similar prosthesis. Those legs, for the record, cost upwards of $20,000 and are completely out of reach for most people with disabilities. Yeah. The only disability in life is a bad attitude is plastered across the photo. There's another one of a little boy running on those same model legs with the caption, Your excuse is invalid. Yes, you can take a moment here to ponder the the use of the word invalid in a disability context. (laughs) There's also the one with the little girl with no hands drawing a picture holding a pencil in her mouth with the caption, Before you quit, try. I'd go on, but I might expunge the contents of my stomach. Yeah. Let me be clear about the intent of inspiration porn. It's there so that non-disabled people can put their worries into perspective. So they can go, oh, well, if that kid who doesn't have any legs can smile while having an awesome time, I should never, (laughs) ever feel bad about my life. Right. It's there so non-disabled people can look at us and think, well, it could be worse. I could be that person. Uh Uh-huh. And it's a really interesting article that I will link to in the show notes. But she talked quite a bit about that. And I think we've talked a little bit about your feelings about the same. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) 
One of the things I, I've been thinking about recently, and I've thought about in some ways for years, once I started working with teenagers, was that like, in part because teenagers are so hearts on their sleeves, you know, everything that happens is the most amazing or the most terrible or the most loving or it's the most that has ever, ever happened. And it's a thing I love about teenagers, and it's a thing that can be really obnoxious about teenagers, but that sometimes it's easy as adults to see them going like, oh my God, I dropped my pencil, and like it's, you know, the end of a Wagnerian opera or something, and you can kind of go like, well, listen, let's put that in context. And putting things in context is a really important skill, but at the same time, I think that sometimes we kind of we think to ourselves on the one hand, well, my suffering is not as bad as someone else's suffering. You know, they're missing all their limbs and I'm not, or whatever the comparison is we're making. And so then we're saying like, well, then I shouldn't be feeling this way about my stuff. And kind of going the other way, you know, then if I'm a, a disabled person, you know, like, am I just always suffering more than everybody? Maybe. Does that mean that like, well, then I'm always sad or I should only ever be happy because I get to be happy with what I have? Like, sometimes there's too much contextual stuff. Well, right. And there are people who've, I guess, got it worse than you. Yeah. I, I remember pretty distinctly while you were waiting on the list, I had moments where I thought, oh, well, I'm really glad it's not a heart. Yeah, all right, me too. Yeah, so, you know, he can be on dialysis, you know, so I probably should stop complaining about these <laughs> circumstances. Right, it's it's not that it doesn't suck, because there might be somebody for whom it sucks more. I think that... You're doing finger quotes, and I just want to remind you that this is an audio medium. <laughs> okay, right, exactly. I put finger quotes around sucks more. Um but that, like, comparative tragedy or comparative joy is not useful for the most part. I think that for most people, the best and most useful way to compare things, if you must, and you probably do need to on sometimes, is on a personal scale. You know, then essentially you're comparing apples to apples. You know, like, I am sad right now. Am I the saddest I've ever been? No. So, okay, then it could be worse. <laughs> Am I the saddest I've ever been? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, then this is really, really sad. Am I the happiest? Am I not? Where am I on my scale? And if I must compare myself to other people, which we all naturally pretty much do as social animals, I should probably compare myself to essentially a jury of my peers, people from roughly the same age, race, gender, everything else, socioeconomic status, all those things. Otherwise, it's not fair to you, and it's not fair to the poor schmuck who has maybe something seriously challenging that they have to deal with. I've had friends sometimes, in an effort to be sensitive, if we're on the phone and somebody's going on and on and complaining about something, and then they interrupt themselves, oh, I feel so bad complaining about my life when, you know, you're dealing with Ari being sick. <laughs> and part of that is really nice. Yeah. And I really appreciate, I do, the spirit in which that's meant. Mm -hmm. But I also think, like you said, things are relative and it's not apples to apples. 
and I'm not some sad misery case that never wants to hear my friend complain about, can you believe what this lady in front of me in line did? <laughs> exactly. Like, I want to hear about that. And that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. And I've said before, in some ways, human misery is like a goldfish. It just grows to fit the size of its tank. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It really is. And, you know, as a teacher, too, like, I think this is maybe an example of what I'm talking about. You know, there are plenty of times when kid comes to school and they're not feeling it. We've all been that kid. Something else is going on. Somebody just broke up with you. You found out that your crush is actually into somebody else. Um, they're not all romantic things. You had a fight with your parents. There's a million things. And so you're not into it. And so I will go to a kid and, they'll say, and I'll say like, hey, you have, you've had your head down. You aren't participating. I don't want to have to give you a zero for today. And they're like, oh, I have a headache. And sometimes that kid will say that and I'll think, man, I had a headache for all of high school. You know, buck up. Or I was throwing up this morning and I'm here. And that's not fair. That's like, that's really not fair. That kid in their life is dealing with their thing based in their context and on their scale. And they should be allowed to do that. Doesn't mean they should put their head down and that stuff. But like, <laughs> they should be allowed to do that and feel their emotions their way in their context without me coming in being like, whatever, loser. Because that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to deal with the stuff I have to deal with, and you have to deal with the stuff you have to deal with on your scale and in your context. And the other side of the coin on the inspiration porn that this mm -hmm. author talks about is the way that it is demeaning to people who are disabled or have challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And she, she talks about kind of, oh, you're so brave, or you're defying the odds, <laughs> or you're inspirational, and... That as soon as the person maybe starts to question or bristle at that, then suddenly they are bitter and ungrateful and right. you need to fit into the mold of the noble sufferer mm -hmm. for other people. And you kind of can't be a human being who sometimes is inspirational and sometimes wants to complain that this sucks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to quote her article one more time. The statement that the only disability in life is a bad attitude puts the responsibility for our oppression squarely at our feet, prosthetic or otherwise, of people with disabilities. <laughs> it's victim blaming. It says that we have complete control of the way that disability impacts our lives. To that, I have one thing to say. Get stuffed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you emailed this to me way right. back when, and my reply was, I'm so inspired that you had the strength and wherewithal to get on your computer and email me <laughs> this article. <laughs> and then I received an email back from you, which read, mm -hmm. Yes, without my example, how would you ever find the strength to email articles to people? I'm sure sometimes you read an article and you're like, I liked this article and I think other people would also like it, but I can't be bothered to switch over to my email client. And then you pause. You look slightly upwards and to the right, gazing into the middle distance. At first, this is a simple expression of sloth, but then a memory springs forth into your mind's eye. Ari sent me an article just yesterday, and he has all those problems, and he hardly ever complains, asterisk. If someone so horribly compromised, whose day-to-day -day existence is so much more difficult than mine, who has to struggle to even do the simplest tasks, can open his email client and copy and paste an article into a message than I, who have every physical and mental advantage over a barely functioning, I'm too nice to call him a waste of space, but let's get real here for a second. I mean, what does somebody like that actually do? Should be able to do it myself. 
There, you think to yourself as the whoosh emits from your computer speakers, I've accomplished something, and it was all thanks to the inspiration Ari gave me. And then you sigh happily and return to watching videos of baby hedgehogs. Asterisk, some artistic license has been taken. <laughs> I really uh, spent some time on that email, didn't I? You were sick at home. Yeah, I was. But I found that among my old emails, and I thought that it was worth sharing with the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. And I think that brings us to my final question this week, which is, Ari, how are you feeling? How, oh. how are you feeling in 2017? Oh my goodness. It's a new year. It's a new me. I'm being sarcastic, I guess. It is a new year. Uh, you know, actually, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm having this weird thing where physically I feel pretty much fine, but I know I'm stuffed up because the stuffed up has settled into my right ear. And so I'm somebody who's pretty sensitive about my hearing, not only because I have hearing loss, but as you know, a musician, but even if that wasn't true, it's really weird to be able to hear out of one ear and have the other ear be like, so that's the main complaint I have this week, but actually I'm doing pretty good. Um, things are going well. It was nice to have a little break from school and regular life and see family and yeah, things are going really well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to me this week. Of course. And anybody who wants to listen to the Kidney Cast, our episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher and on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. If you have questions or comments you want to send to the Kidney Cast, or you too have some old hilarious emails from Ari that you would like me to read on the podcast, <laughs> oh no! please send them to kidneycast <laughs> at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash kidneycast and on Twitter, at KidneyCast. And I always end every week by saying thank you to everybody for listening, and that might sound like a matter of course, but I really mean it. Thank you. I genuinely, we both do appreciate people who listen thank to the podcast. You. We've gotten some very nice incidental comments in the new year and mm -hmm. at the end of last year from people who listened, and I appreciate every single one of you who <laughs> listen to this podcast we put out. So thank you very much, and I hope that your new year is off to a good start. Thanks, everyone. So are we at, how are we on time? It's going to be one of our shorter episodes. Oh, well then, do you want to do the, the alternative theme song you wrote? It was really <laughs> great. If I sing it, will you leave me alone about it? Yeah. Okay. Life is like a hurricane <laughs> when you've got Alport's <laughs> transplants, dialysis, hearing aids, meds of all sorts. We'll talk about Ari's kidney and his medical history. Kidney cast. Woo! <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what the what the animation would be like for that. The last thing people need as a New Year's present is me singing again. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs>